Well, you know, Steve preached a few uh, weeks ago, and he said he's not a preacher, he's a teacher, and I'm not even a teacher, so I don't know. <laughs> it's, um, uh, you know, preparing for this, it makes me think about, you know, when you go through school, elementary school, high school, you're lectured to, and you go to college and you're lectured to, and med school, you get more lectures, and then uh, when we did residency, we got more lectures. Um, and then when we got to fellowship training, when we started the lung training, it was a really shocker because all of a sudden they said, uh, here's your subjects, you guys divide it up and you teach us. And that was a really tough deal. I remember my first assignment was the determinants of airflow. And, and uh, um, it, anyway, I spent exhaustive hours trying to do that and then trying to teach these guys that are the experts and uh, it was very humbling. Um, as humbling as that was, this is more humbling because, you know, I could, t- I could talk to you guys all day about lung stuff, and you wouldn't know a lot of it, what I was saying. i got to tell you about anything, you know. Um, but uh, I'm accountable to you all, and I'm accountable to our, our Father, and so it's uh, a lot bigger task. So, And I promise I won't cry much. <laughs> uh, but let's, uh, let's read. Uh, we've already kind of read it. Uh, it was in our recitation. Uh, but let's read through this. And so um, we're in 1 Corinthians 1, 15 through 19. And, and the reason I picked this, um, Tuesday morning we're going through Colossians. Um, uh, and we're using Navigator material. It's really good. And the source for today is Navigator material plus uh, some commentaries. I used MacArthur and Wearsby. Um, and I know you all have had this experience where you're reading through Scripture and it just leaps out of the page at you, and and as I read this segment, it was just like, oh my goodness, this is incredible, you know, um, and uh, uh, and so I thought, and I this is before I think we even talked about that pastor was going to be gone and we needed to cover this, so uh, I, I said, well, I'll, we'll, we'll do this, and so uh, let's read through this. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creations. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we we come to you this morning and and, uh, we thank you for your word. Father, you don't leave us guessing who you are and uh, what we're to be and how we're to act. And Father, uh, I pray uh, these next few minutes as we look in your word that that I would just become really small in people's eyes, and your word would be just incredibly great. In your precious name, amen. So uh, how many people, you know, I, I bet you younger people, anybody, let's say, younger than 30, when, how many people have, have written a letter? Not a card, a letter. If you're under 30, how many people have written a letter? Okay. Got some hands? Quite a few. All right. Good. Good. Okay. Well, you know, just trying to paint a scene for Colossians. 
So Colossians is a fellowship, is a church. I, got, I can't move far. I didn't put on my hell mic, so I've got to stay here. Um, but um, uh, So Colossians is a church Paul never met. He did not found his church. The church was probably founded by a gentleman named Epaphras, who may have been a co-worker with Paul. Uh, but but the, the church in Colossus uh, got into trouble, and it got infested with false teachers. Um, and it's been a big subject for our, our sermons the last several weeks. Um, and so Epaphras uh, made Paul known of the problem. And so Paul is writing a letter to people he's never met. Uh, and, he's, and it's not just a letter of, of information, but it's a letter of reprimand to and instruction. So that's kind of the scene that you, you see this. What are the heresies that are being dealt with? And the, and the main thing they're dealing with, and there's different things, but the main thing they're dealing with is a heresy called Gnosticism. And by the way, Gnosticism still exists. When I was researching Gnosticism, you know, there's websites on Gnosticism, and it's, it's alive and well, which I was surprised. I thought that was something of the past. But no, it, it still exists. Gnostic philosophy still exists. And the basic premise with Gnosticism is dualism, and anything spiritual is good, anything physical is bad, all right? And that really creates a problem for the Judeo-Christian faith, uh, because if, if the material universe, earth, is bad, how could a holy God have anything to do with it, let alone create it? And then really what threw a wrench in their works is that you had God come in bodily form and dwell among us. That did not fit. And so they had all kinds of distortions that were coming in here. Um, and, uh, you know, they had what's called asceticism. And, uh, and, and what happened is if, if the way they saw things is if body's bad, right, then there was kind of two realms of thinking here. Well, either you treat your body bad, you deprive it of food, pleasure, anything, or you had the opposite. Well, it just doesn't matter what you do, and then you had a licentious lifestyle where you just did anything you wanted. Um, they worshipped angels. Um, you were saved by attaining the secret knowledge. Um, and uh, anyway, and, there, and mixed in here, you had different human religions and traditions. Colossus was on a major trade route, and so in Asia Minor, so they were influenced by a lot of different cultures that brought their religions with them. And so it was quite a difficult um, scene, you might say. Uh, the common theme, though, with Gnosticism is that Christ was not God, and his work on the cross was not enough for salvation. And so that's what Paul is writing to correct. We need to remember that every part of Scripture testifies of Jesus. On the walk to Emmaus, there were two men that Jesus joined. And in Luke 24:27, it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all Scriptures concerning himself. In addition, Jesus said to the Jewish leaders in John 5.39, it says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. In today's passage, the Apostle Paul reveals the Lord's true identity by viewing him in relation to four things. God, 
the universe, the unseen world, and the church. Uh, and you know what? I thought this, 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 this segment was so great, and I'm not alone in that. Actually, as I was looking through commentaries, John MacArthur said that this is some of the most significant scriptures in all of the Bible. And Warren Wiersbe said that no paragraph in Scripture contains more concentrated doctrine about Jesus. So, I'm in good company, I guess. But let's go on to uh, our text here, and let's look at verse 15. And this is talking about Jesus' Christ's relationship to God. And verse 15 says again, And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Remember these false teachers. Always keep that in view because this is what he's writing in context of. They view Jesus as one of a bunch of emanations. He wasn't even a person. Uh, and uh, he, was, he was among these, these spirits, so to speak. The word image is econ, E-I-K-O-N. Robert, uh, forgive me, I'm going to butcher Greek, I'm sure. I don't know how to say these words. Uh, but it's where we get the word icon. We all know with our computers icons, right? And it's the word for image. We know that man is created in the image of God in 1 Corinthians 11:7 and Genesis 1:26 and 27. Because of this, we have some commonality with the attributes, and that's our intellect, our emotions, and will. But we are not created in God's moral image, and we do not have his incommunicable attributes, such as its omnipresence, his omnipotence, his um, omniscience and his immutability. Those are hard words for me to say. Jesus being the perfect image of God is is also stated in Hebrews 1.3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact, emphasis, exact representation of his being. In John 1.14, the author writes, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory in the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Also in Scripture, Jesus claimed to be God in the human flesh. John 8:58 states, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, you see that word, I am. And we'll talk more about that little segment there, I am. But that's the same word that you would see for Yahweh. Many other scriptures uh, claim that Jesus is God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 20.28, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And in Titus 2.13, Paul writes, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Other texts that if you want to write these down, Philippians 2.6. Colossians 2.9, which we'll come to in a little bit. Hebrews 1.8 and 2 Peter 1.1. Let's go on uh, in this section. It says, he is the firstborn. All right, and that Greek word, again, I'll probably mess it up, but it's prototokos, all right? Uh, Prototokos of all creation. From the early church history to today's cults, uh, cults have used this scripture to attack the deity of Christ, and they claim that he was created because of this term. All this word can mean chronological firstborn. This more often means a preeminence of position or rank, and that's how it's used here. 
This uh, use of uh, firstborn prototokos is used in texts like Romans 8.29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Hebrews 1.6, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In Hebrews 12.23, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So we'll go on to the next section here, and this is Jesus in relationship to the universe. And the verses there, again, are verses 16 and 17. I'll read those again. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In this passage, Paul gives three reasons for Jesus' primacy over creation. First one is, he's the creator. Remember to the Gnostics, Jesus was just one of an emanations, not God, and God really couldn't have anything to do with creation. God was distant and not involved in the material world. In addition uh, to Paul's statement, John in John 1-3 states, Through him all things were made possible, were made. Without him nothing was made that he has been made. I'm going to read that one more time because I messed that up. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made, and that has been made. Also in Hebrews 1-2 it reads, But in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. You know, the creation is an amazing thing. And, uh, um, you know, one of the, one of the, the greatest things uh, or privileges of being a doctor is I get to discover how God put all this together. There are 724 trillion cells in your body. Okay, that's 724 plus 12 zeros. That's, that's a lot. That's a big number. Um, these cells turn over at different rates. Your skin cells turn over pretty quickly. Uh, different, different other cells turn over pretty quickly. Your bone marrow, uh, things like that. Some cells turn over really slow. Uh, I think the slowest cells, Jeff might have to confirm this, might be the neuron cells. Those are probably the slowest of the growing cells. But you get a new you every seven years. Your cells have at least regenerated once every seven years, which I think is pretty cool. Also, when you think of the human heart, it beats. You don't tell it to beat. It beats a little faster when you uh, fall in love. Um, beats a little faster if you're running the mile, right, Jack? Yeah. And, uh, and But on the average, if it's beating 60 beats per minute, uh, it's beating about 100,000 times a day. And if you live to be 70, it beats 2.5 trillion times. That's a bunch. And it just beats. It just beats. Um, more close to, to home, for me anyway, uh, you take about 12,800 breaths a day. Again, it speeds up if you get a little excited or you're exercising. Um, but if, if, over a course of a lifetime, that's about 400 million breaths or more at, in your lifetime. And, you know, we don't tell ourselves to breathe. Now, we can make ourselves breathe harder or slower or things like that. But we just breathe because our brainstem tells us to breathe. We don't have to think about it. When we go to sleep, we don't have to wake up and go, oh, we've got to take a breath. No, the brainstem just tells us to do that. Also, when you look at creation, you know, and, and uh, I'm from eastern Oklahoma. 
uh, where we have trees and uh, rocks and clear water uh, creeks, and uh, I miss that sometimes. But, you know, I think that every place you live has salient, uh, a salient something that's beautiful. And I think for northwest Oklahoma, it's our sky. Um, you know, um, I love I love in the fall and winter when the humidity is low, you can go out and you really don't have to have a telescope. If you do, you can see a lot more, but you can look up and see all the stars. Well, there's roughly one times 10 to the 25th power. So 25 zeros. That's how many stars there are. And that's just a rough estimate. I, I have a feeling there's probably a lot more than that. Uh, and Steve presented uh, several years ago, uh, we watched Lou Giglio's film, and he talked about not the biggest star, but one of the biggest stars was a star named Betelgeuse. And uh, we know how big the sun is, and I think there's like, you can put over a million Earths in our current sun, that's how big it is. Well, this Betelgeuse is so big, so you can picture, we've all seen pictures of the orbits of all the planets, right? And we know we're pretty far away from the sun. So if you took a diameter of our orbit around the sun, that's how big this star is. All right, it's gigantic, and it's not even the biggest star. So anyway, creation is just an amazing thing, and it does reveal. Um, uh, there's, there's called uh, specific and natural revelation, and God is revealed in his creation. And Jesus created it. Number two, Jesus has primacy over creation because he is before all things. John 1, 1 through 2 states, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And John eight fifty eight also reads, Very truly, I tell you, this is Jesus answering, Before Abraham was born, again, here's that term, I am. And again, that I am me is that word for Yahweh. One of R.C. Sproul's, uh, not, I would say, his most famous book, but one of, one of his more noted books is called The Holiness of God. And he talks about that word, I am. In its roots, it has the word being. You know, and we're, we call ourselves human beings. Uh, but R.C. Sproul makes an argument that we're not human beings. The only real being is God. And the reason is because he is a constant. He does not change. He's immutable. Uh, he said that we would be better called human becomings. Uh, I think that if you're under 40, you're a becoming. And if you're after 40, you're a begoing. Um, um, and so, um, so, but anyway, God is the only being. Uh, third reason. For Jesus' primacy over creation is because he holds things all together. And I, and I love this part. Uh, and a part of it is because I think the science that goes with it. Not only did he create all things, but he sustains all things. Again, going back to Hebrews 1.3, it states, The sun is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the power of his word. Um, there's an author that, that uh, we've read and listened to. He's a, a physician. Background is physics. And he's written several books. One of his books is More Than Meets the Eye. And he talks about the carbon atom. It's made of six neutrons and six protons. And they initially, and there's a bunch of little electrons that circle it, but the nucleus has got six neutrons which have no charge and six protons that have a positive charge. The thing is, is with all the modern nuclear physics and science, Nobody can explain why that atom nucleus stays together. It's all held together. 
In the 1920s and 30s, experiments were conducted where protons were used to break this unknown force, and the atomic age was, was born. Um, last year was the 75th anniversary of the dropping of two atomic bombs in Japan. And we all have pictures embedded in our minds of, of the pictures from that explosion and the devastation that caused. And, and as you study this, it brings to mind there's a verse in 2 Peter 3.10. And I think this is going to happen at the end of, of time. Uh, but it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Perhaps all Christ is going to do is just go, just drop a sustaining power and, and, and let, let things go. And it's just going to take its natural course. And we know the devastation that that's going to be the intensity. We've just seen a fraction of it, haven't we? Next thing we want to discuss is Jesus' relationship to the unseen world. And this is just a small part of that verse 16, the latter part. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. This refers to various ranks of angels and states that Jesus is far from being an angel, as the false teachers taught, but he created them. In addition, Jesus is above these created angels, and they serve him. In 1 Peter 3.22, Christ who has gone into heaven and is God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. They are in submission to him. The next thing we're going to talk about is Jesus, Jesus Christ in relationship to the church. And this goes to verse 18. And again, I'll read this too. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Here Paul presents four great truths regarding Christ's relationship to the church. Number one is Christ is the head of the church. The picture here is not a CEO in the head of a big corporation. No, he is the head of a living body, a living organism. He controls every part of it and gives it life, and he gives it direction. In Acts 9, uh, Paul, then named Saul, is on his road to Damascus to persecute more Christians. He has uh, 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 written authority to put them in prison. And uh, Jesus Christ appears to him. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Notice he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Or why are you persecuting my believers? But he says, why are you persecuting me? In 1 Corinthians twelve twenty seven, it says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. In Ephesians 5.23, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also head of the church. Second fact, Christ is the source of the church. The Greek word here is arche, which also means beginning. It is used in a twofold sense here, meaning the source and primacy. The church has its origins in Jesus. In Ephesians 1.4, it says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. It is through his death we are made righteous, and by his resurrection and by his spirit we, we are given life. Go back to Ephesians 5.23. It says, He himself being the Savior of the body. In Ephesians 5.25, 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Christ is not only the head of the church, but the creator of the church. The next fact is he is the firstborn from the dead. And this is, goes back to that, that firstborn, that word that we've already looked at, prototokos. Uh, and again, this can mean chronological firstborn, but more often, and certainly in these contexts, talks about rank or primacy. In Revelations 1.5, it reads, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Remember, firstborn can relate chronologically, but here it talks about first in rank. It is his resurrection that testifies who he is to the church and to the world. It is the resurrection that proves that he gives life to those who make him Lord and Savior. It is his resurrection that gives us hope. There is so much more to look forward to when we depart this world. The last, last fact here is Christ is the preeminent one. He is first place in everything. Psalm 89.27 also states, I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And in Philippians 2, 8 through 11, it reads, And being found in the appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That deserves an amen, I think. I was hoping to get one from you, Tana. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for that. Um, all right. So anyway, let's, Paul's summing up here in verse 19. Paul sums up the argument, and it says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The word used for fullness is a Greek word, pleroma which was used by the Gnostics to refer, to refer to the divine powers and attributes that were distributed to all these divine emanations. Paul often would take false teachers' own terminology and turn it back on them. And this is where Paul is saying, no, the fullness of God is in Jesus Christ. He states, restates this in Colossians 2.9, where he says, For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Also in John 1.14, it states, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus told his disciples, uh, and also Jesus told his disciples, Philip, in John 14.8, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who's seen me, and I think this is really profound, anybody who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So we've covered a lot here. And, you know, Paul's books are, are mixed with usually doctrine, but they always have a practical application. If I left you here, we've had some great doctrine. We've had some great teaching, haven't we? But what do we do with this? And if you go down, you know, Paul gets there in his books. And if you go to Colossians 2, 6 through 8, let's read that really quick, because now we're getting to the application part. And it says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, 
rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this word world, I'm sorry, rather than on Christ. And so um, this is a vivid picture. That latter part there where he talks about not being distracted by other philosophy, that's a word picture, and, and really it's talking about robbery. And what he's saying, Paul's saying to the Colossians, is don't let these false teachers rob you of the solid doctrine that you've been taught. And then he goes on in, in that, those verses earlier to encourage them, this is what you're rooted and grounded in. Be rooted and grounded. We're to be bathed in God's word. We're to place ourselves under the teaching and the preaching of God's word. God's word. We're to be students of God's word. That's where I'll leave us with that challenge. Let's uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you again for your word. And, and uh, Father, I uh, just pray that we would take this instruction to heart. Father, just uh, make us uh, just ever increasingly students of your word. Uh, continue to build in us a love for that word. Uh, Father, we again, we thank you for all that you provide for us. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in your precious name. Amen.